We are in Romans 12, and again, after 11 chapters of doctrine and theology about grace and about being saved by grace and not by works, interestingly, I had a conversation with a guy that I met at the gym. He's from a Catholic background, and uh, we got to talking about works and grace and assurance of salvation and things like that, and I invited him to, uh, to come to church, and I was reminded that the book of Romans is to the believers in Rome, the seat of the Vatican and the Catholic Church. And I thought, wow, it just kind of, you ever have one of those aha moments? Like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. So this book dealing with the grace of God that we're not saved by our works, we're not saved by our rituals or our routines or our performance, very theological, very doctrinal, now very practical in chapter 12, we step into what is life like in the church that is filled with the grace of God. And we started out in chapter 12 with Paul bringing everybody, Jew and Gentile, people that couldn't have been more disalike. Is that even a word, disalike? They couldn't have been less alike than Jew and Gentile. And he's brought them together under mercy. And he's told them, look, now that you know who I am, now that you understand grace, now the next step for you is to give your life to me, God would say, as a living sacrifice. I thought about Jesus at the Last Supper saying to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And God telling us to present our bodies like Christ, a living sacrifice, my body presented to God and broken for him and for you. And we learn that our mind has to be healed. The first thing God does, once you give him your life, once you say, God, my life is yours, he says, okay, I got a lot of work to do. I'm gonna start at the top. You got to start with your mind. Because see, you thought you were pretty smart. You thought you had things figured out because you compared yourself to what the world said and did. And compared to the world, you were doing pretty good. But then you realize God has a whole different agenda for you than you did. And so God begins to do a work. And that work in your mind that starts in your mind transforms little by little over time, transforms your life. You needed, I needed to have my mind healed. The first thing he had to teach us, well, you don't get involved with God. You don't get involved with church so that God can serve you. That's a, the world's way is man-centric, is me-centric. But God's way is God-centric. Oh, that's a big change. I'm used to being at the center of my life. I'm used to being the one that everything revolves around. Well, now Jesus is at the center. And everything revolves around him. That's a big change. And I go from being served, it's showing up from church. This was the first section, verses three through eight, that showing up for church isn't about everybody serving my needs. It's about me being a servant to help meet other needs. I mean, sometimes people come here and they think that all this stuff just kind of happens, you know? That the parking lot gets lined and the lights are turned on and the, the air temperature is just right for all of us. That all these things just... They have by accident, right? You know, there's a band up here. Well, they don't have to practice. They just know the music, right? No, there's a lot that goes into the service and to to doing the things that happen in and around the church. And surprisingly, it's not all just for you. It's like, it's not all for you. I mean, it is for you, but it's not for you. It's for God. That's why we do what we do. And you have a chance, an opportunity now to be part of that, to go move from, hey, I come And wow, people must love me around here. Look what they're doing for me. I've heard it said that you can read the Bible like a dog or a cat. Have you heard of that? My dog 
See, I, I do everything for my dog. I feed my dog. I take my dog for a walk. I let the dog out. I do whatever the dog needs. And the dog goes, oh, you are meeting all my needs. You must be God. And that's a better way to read the Bible than to reading the Bible like a cat. The cat says, oh, you feed me. You take care of me. You clean my litter box. I must be God. <laughs> and some of you have read the Bible and come to church that way. They do all this for me. I must be God. But Paul says, no, the first step to healing your mind is to realize that stuff around here doesn't just happen by accident. There's people who've dedicated their lives to God who are then being willing to be used in some behind the scenes and some not so behind the scenes ways. I mean, we never think about the guys in the sound booth until the words don't come up on time. I mean, wait, wait a second. Somebody's back there doing that. And you get a chance to say, hey, I'm going to move from being served to being the one that looks at how many people are serving me to how many people can I minister to. So that's step one. Now, the next step is, well, sometimes people in the church can say, well, I'm doing my thing, but don't expect me to be nice to people. I mean, I'll serve and I'll do so, I'll pitch in around here, but don't expect me to have relationships. I mean, he's talking about this to the Jew and the Gentile. So the next part is not just what we do, but the relationships we have with each other. Those are vitally important and different than the world. Remember, we're no longer being conformed to the world. The world has its ways. And when we come to church, hurting, broken people, we have to relearn how to have relationships. I mean, I've met so many people that have come to Calvary Chapel You've got panic attack around people. You're afraid of crowds. You've had a hard time with trust. There's tons of fears. There's tons of anxieties. I get it. I understand. I see it all the time. We're this place where there's hurting people and hurt people hurt people. So our, our options are maybe I'll just, I'll love God with all my heart, mind, soul, strength, but then I'm just going to avoid people. Is that what the commandment is? Love God and avoid people so you can stay happy? Well, the reality is those two commands go hand in hand. Love God and love my neighbor. You can't love someone you're trying to avoid. And I get it. I understand. See, the problem is, well, you've heard me say, England, aside from having a royal wedding this past weekend, uh, they've also hired a minister of loneliness. Did you know that? They hired uh, now part of their parliament as a minister of loneliness because they've realized that loneliness has become a great plague. They're realizing this in the United States as well, that loneliness is a greater health risk to people than people have realized. The New York Times just did an article uh, called How Social Isolation is Killing Us. The article says social isolation is a growing epidemic, one that's increasingly recognized as having dire physical, mental, and emotional consequences. Since the 1980s, the number of adult Americans who say they are lonely has doubled from 20 to 40%. The article goes on to say, after much more uh, data that I'm not presenting to you, the data is clear, but what to do about it, the article says, is not so clear. Can I just tell you that in Romans chapter 12, what to do about it is crystal clear? Well, it turns out that admitting loneliness, according to this article, is admitting failure in life's most fundamental areas, belonging, love, and attachment. So if you admit that you're lonely, you also admit that you have failed in relationships. And that's why people have a hard time even admitting that they're lonely. 
And now we live in the digital age. The paradox of our digital age is that social media actually creates, can you guess, antisocial behavior. The article finally ends, again, after much more information, saying that human connection lies at the heart, in many ways, of human well-being. In other words, what they're saying is, you can't be healthy and be alone. We need God. See, we live in a world that desperately knows that it needs God, but doesn't want God. Can't live without God, but sometimes can't live with Him either. We live in a world where we say, I know I desperately need people, but people are tough. I struggle with people, struggle with relationships. And so we're stuck sort of in the old porcupine dilemma. You know, the porcupine dilemma, I've shared that a number of times, that porcupines wanted to gather together on a cold day to get warm because they needed the warmth. But when they, the closer they got, they began to prick and stick each other. So they said, well, we should move apart. And they moved apart. They stopped pricking and sticking each other. But what happened? They grew cold and got lonely and isolated. So we have this dilemma where we need God and we need each other, but how to have those relationships Well, you can't have them in a healthy way unless we understand what God is saying to us in Romans chapter 12. Again, we come in, we know the saying, hurt people, hurt people. You've heard that before, right? And in church, we deal with hurting people. For some people, Jesus is the last stop. I've tried this, I've tried that. I've been strung out, burned out, stressed out. Someone invited me to this church in the woods, and here I am. I ain't going to say anything, but I'll listen. You need people. Turns out that what God said in Genesis is still true. It's not good for man to be alone. So how do we deal with this? How do we handle it? I'm going to ask you five questions. You don't have to answer them out loud. Just in your own mind, yes or no. Are you ready? Question number one. I think primarily about how an event or decision affects me. Yes or no? Question number two. I don't automatically consider what other people have been through. True or false? Question three, life would be easier if it wasn't for those other people. True or false? Remember, you are an other people to somebody. So question four, true or false, the most important thing to pursue is happiness. Question five, true or false, I am lonely. Things to think about as we deal with this intensely relational section in the book of Romans chapter 12, having moved through the gifts, the various ways people contribute to something greater than themselves, using the body as an example. Now in chapter 12, verse 9, we pick up dealing with how do we deal with each other? How do we have relationships? And how do we respond when people hurt us or are mean to us? Verse 9 begins with, let love be without hypocrisy. Say amen to that. He's talking to the church. The world has its way of love, doesn't it? The world uses the word love. I think they have a different definition. In the world, love is, I'll hang out with you, I'll talk to you, I'll be your friend, as long as you're meeting my needs. As long as I can get something from you. As long as you're approving of my behavior. But the minute you stop approving, the minute you stop giving, the minute you stop doing for me, then I will shame you or be wicked towards you. See, the world says love is conditional. God says love is unconditional. And he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without being pretend, not make believe. Don't fake it till you make it. You see, 
The only way to have this kind of love, this kind of love comes from God. No other source for it. There's some other offshoots of loving-like things, but only this unconditional, the word is agape in Greek. This unconditional love only comes from God. So the challenge is if you've come here and you've not been saved and you see how other people are loving each other and you try to imitate that, you'll fall short because you don't have the right source. Let love be without being fake. You ever been to a church where you felt like love was fake? Like there's a lot of people just faking it. Like they were talking about you one way in front of your face, but another way behind your back. Hey, let's not make that the way at Calvary Chapel. Paul says it's not the way of the church. And on and on through this whole section, all the things we're going to read are manifestations of love worked out among people. And when we do these things, like we're going to read them and go, oh, I guess I got to do that. Like we're going to read about hospitality. Well, God says be hospitable, so I guess I'll have to, and I'll be hospitable, but then I'm going to complain about it other times. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't pretend. If you can't do it, then say you can't do it. And we'll pray for you, and we'll wait for God to do the work in your life. The important thing is that love in the church should be genuine. And a manifestation of genuine love, when you love genuinely, you hate what's evil and you cling to what is good because evil things hurt people. And the Bible says here, Paul says, abhor what is evil. I like that word. That's a strong word, isn't it? It means to be horrified by. Are you horrified by evil? Well, in the world, we call evil entertainment. And we've stopped being horrified by things that should horrify us. I did some research. You know I like to do my research, right? Now, again, if you like this video game, don't take it personal. This is just what I'm telling you about. You know, we're talking about abhorring what is evil. Turns out Grand Theft Auto V is one of the top-selling video games. When it came out in 2013, it was top-seller. Five years later, still a top-seller. Now, in the top video games, Sure, Mario is in there and, you know, FIFA soccer and Madden football, all those are in there. But among them, among them is this Grand Theft Auto 5. And I thought, what's the deal? So I Googled, why is it so popular? And I found this article called, why is it so popular? So here's what I have. It says, love it or hate it, you can't deny it. This video game is a big money-making machine for the publisher of it. The latest rendition when it launched in 2013 generated $800 million dollars. That was right when it launched. One wealth advisor and investment manager wrote a note just before the game's launch that he expects the game to generate a billion worth of sales in a single month. Largest video game release the world has ever seen. And again, five years later, this article's five years old. Five years later, that game is still topping the charts. I'll skip a few things here. The question is again, why is it so popular? And they offered a couple of reasons. One being just the fantasy world that it creates is very detailed, very expansive. There's all kinds of opportunities as you live in this fantasy world to pursue a variety of things you can pursue other than crime. We'll talk about that in a minute, but you can pursue entertainment. You can go skydiving. You can ride your bicycle. You do all kinds of things. You can watch TV and movies. So it's kind of an amazing digital experience. It's oozing with interesting content and things to do. But the problem is, is that it says the series really is the poster child for video game violence. The series has crime-based storyline. Its gameplay enables players to go on rampages and mass murder sprees if they want to. The game also revolves around gunplay, law-breaking, sex, and it makes the franchise public enemy number one for conservative lawmakers and lobby groups. So people are lobbying against such video games 
what role video games play in things like the shooting down in Texas just this past week. I'm not here to say what that role is, but the problem is, is that as group lobby against these games, you know what happens? It just increases the sales. So in the world, there's an attraction to evil and good is boring. Evil sells, good is boring. In the church, Paul says we should abhor what is evil, not be entertained by what is evil, not play around with what is evil, not play around with it in virtual time, what is evil. You see, we can hate something and horrify something publicly, but then the challenge is what do you do privately? Do you abhor it privately? So we have to make these applications to our own lives, abhor what is evil and cling to, hold tightly to, hold fast to what is good. I don't know what the world is up to, but I know what the church should be up, clinging to what is good. Musically, relationally, cling to what is good. Verse 10, he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. I like that too, right? The church is not a business. I'm not a CEO. You are not clients. The church is a family, right? Say that. We're a family, right? Say that you know that. Yes. So when he says, be kindly affectionate to one another, that's the Greek word that talks about family. There's family love. Now, some of you have come from some families where there's not a whole lot of love. So church is the place where you can learn what normal family love should be. So you've come in hurting. You've come in from dysfunction. This should be the place where those of us that have been walking with the Lord, understanding family love, that we can exemplify that. And so someone who's come from dysfunction can learn how healthy families handle conflict. How do healthy people handle disagreement? So there's this family love, the affection that should be present between parents and children and children and parents and all of this with brotherly love. There's a deep care because we're a family, blood bought by Jesus Christ. That makes us black, white, rich, poor. Doesn't matter where you're from, how old, young, we are all a family. My children have grown up in this church. They've got tons of parents and grandparents in the Lord. And I'm thankful for it. I've got many brothers and sisters in Christ. So be kindly affectionate. He says to the Jew and to the Gentile, that's radical. You guys love like brothers in honor, giving preference to one another. Now that's a tough verse. In honor, that is the word for value. It's a word describing how much money you're willing to spend on something. That's the value of something. If you spend money, you buy an iPhone 10, you say, yeah, having that technology is worth about a grand to me. I don't know. What's an iPhone 10 cost? I don't know. It's worth about a grand. Yeah. So that is worth a thousand dollars. That's not a judgment statement. It's a value statement to you, to me, I wait till you get done with your iPhone 10 and I get it from you used. But you need it new, you say it's worth it to me to have it right away. And that's a value statement. To me, other things are valuable. So Paul says, because of the value we have, that's why we give preference to each other. Well, what's the value that we have? Think about, you were not bought. Your life was not bought with gold or silver. What were you bought with? The precious blood of Christ. That makes you pretty darn valuable, doesn't it? That makes that person that you're sitting next to pretty darn valuable. They were bought by the blood of Christ. So we need to care about them. So when it comes time for preferences to be voiced, what the temperature is, what the color of the carpet is, all kinds of things in the church, because we're a family, 
we go, you know what? There's an opportunity to say, you know what? The word here means to put others first, to place others before. There's an opportunity to say, you know what? Instead of coming to church and getting my needs met, instead of it being what temperature I want, see, because if I have it my temperature, it can't be your temperature. It can't be your temperature and my temperature. It's got to be somebody's temperature, right? It can't be my volume and your volume. It's got to be somebody's volume. You know, I know it means a lot to you, and I know I love you. You can have it your way. You can be the Burger King. You can have it your way. And that's okay. You can do that, right? What happens in a family when this kind of thing happens? When families say, you know what? Here's what I want. Here's what you want. Let's compromise. Let's talk this out. This time, you can have your preference. It's just preferences, right? You like vanilla. I like chocolate. We can't have both. We can only afford one gallon of ice cream. Chocolate, you want chocolate? We'll get you chocolate. How many of you have a TV in every room of your house? See, there was a day when families only had one TV and you had to do this little thing we called compromise at the time. But now we all have our own. We don't have to share. I can watch what I want to watch. You watch what you want to watch. And so we avoid this idea of I want what I want and you want what you want. So, but Paul says, look, sometimes in the church, we can't all have it our way. And the way our mind is getting healed is saying, you know, it's okay for you to have your way in honor because the value you have to Christ I'll let you have it your way. Verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So again, the world has its masters that it serves, but in the church, we're spending our lives to serve the Lord and his kingdom. If the church people are serving the kingdom of the world, then who's serving the Lord? The world's not coming in here to accomplish the things of God. So God's people have to be, well, what's he say here? Not lagging in diligence mean not slothful. How many have ever seen a sloth? I love that animal. That's a cool animal. I mean, they are just so slow. Moss grows on them. They're so slow. But that's the example. Don't be slothful when it comes to the speed with which you do and serve the things of God. Because, well, I'm really busy. I got a lot going on. I'll get to it someday. I'll get around the things of God. When the dog dies, the kids graduate, then I'll serve the Lord. Paul says, don't be lazy when it comes to serving the Lord. Do it now. You might not have tomorrow. And be fervent in spirit. That's a word that means to boil. If it's speaking of liquid, the word fervent means boiling water. If it's speaking of solid like steel, it speaks of glowing with heat. Would that describe your life? Does that describe your Christian life? Are you just bubbling up with this desire to serve the Lord and things of God? Are you just glowing hot for the Lord? Or have you cooled off? Have you become lukewarm? Well, if so, you become lukewarm or maybe even cold. I mean, I watched during worship this morning, some were pouring out praise to God. Others were trickling. I'm trickling out praise. And that's okay. But Paul writes this to the church because he knows we struggle with this. He knows you need, I need to be reminded that when it comes to things of God, to not be casual or lukewarm or lazy or slothful, but to be diligent and on fire and burning and boiling over for the Lord. You have to cultivate that. There's something in your life you're boiling for. And you're boiling for it because that's what you feed. You will glow in the areas that you are feeding. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Look at verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Rejoicing in hope to the future. It's an eye to the things of God. We believe as we look for a way to rejoice, a thing to rejoice about, we rejoice not always in what's going on in the world or going on in our lives, 
but we can find something to rejoice in. That is the hope of Jesus Christ. That is the hope that is the faithfulness of God. So we Christians, we have reasons to rejoice. The world doesn't understand. And not only that, we also go through some suffering, go through some difficult times. Did you see that? Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Tribulation is stress and anxiety. Anybody feel stressed out today? Anybody going through some pressures in their lives? See, here's the challenge with church. We come here and you're having a good day. You've woken up, you had your cup of coffee, you did your morning devotionals and you're ready to go. You come to church. Hi, how are you? Oh, good to see you. Good to meet you. Someone else has come in. They're way stressed out. Some bad things are happening and they're using tribulation as an excuse to treat you like dirt. I know I'm supposed to love people, but I don't feel like it today. I'm having a bad day. Therefore, I'm going to curse you out because that's going to make me feel better. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. Well, keep enough for yourself. Because when we're having a bad day, sometimes that's when we allow ourselves, excuse ourselves from treating people in an ugly and mean fashion. And Paul says, when it comes to our relationships and you're going through something hard, well, how can I have the strength to not unleash on people and yet still love people even though I'm going through something hard? Well, he said it in the last section, the last part of that verse. He says, continuing steadfastly in prayer. That's how you do it. Your prayer life is the key to your relational life. Taking these things to God. Prayer is not something I do by the clock. My clock doesn't tell me when to pray. My emotions tell me when to pray. My mind tells me when to pray. Prayer is my opportunity to have a relationship with the living God, to talk to him about how I feel, to tell him what's going on in my life, to cry with him to rejoice with him, that he will be there for me when no one else is there for me. And it doesn't say just do this occasionally. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. It's the whole of our existence. So prayer, an absolute necessity. Your personal prayer life impacts your public and corporate relational life. Distributing, verse 13 says, the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. So sharing what you guys have giving to needs that people have, watching as a need is made known via our Yahoo group or some other way, and you guys just rise to the occasion. And that's a sign of a healthy church. In church, there are those that have and have been blessed abundantly, but there are those that come in and and they don't have. They don't have what you have. They have some needs in their life. Now, we have to filter out what is a need and what is a greed, right? Uh, Someone doesn't come in and say, oh, pastor, I'm just feeling down today. I really believe, you know, my vehicle just isn't, it's just breaking down. I think a BMW would really make me feel better about myself. Oh, church, guess what? Someone needs a BMW. No, 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 no. But there are real needs. There's food needs. There's housing needs. And you guys have risen to say, hey, we're going to share. A healthy church shares its possessions because of love. And a healthy church loves strangers or people that are new. God has told, even in the Old Testament, love for strangers, love for people that aren't part of who you are. Don't just get cliquish. Don't just get denominational. Someone comes in here, we say, oh, well, there's greeters to greet them. This is for everybody to love, to be given, to chase after, to pursue being hospitable. Matter of fact, it says, do it without grumbling in another verse that Paul writes. Being hospitable is a natural part of being a leader in the church, that there's this willingness. I have this house, I have this ability, and I just want to open my house. 
to say, hey, you've got a temporary need, come on in. I can open my house. Do you remember a day, church, in church life when you would go to a church and somebody, if it was your first time, by the end of the day, someone's invited you to their house for lunch. But those days are past, I think. Our houses now are the place where I get away from people. It's my house. And so the challenge here is be given to hospitality, whether that's in your own house. Helga and I have a wonderful photo album that we started when we were first married of people that we've had the opportunity to open our home to. Some of you have stayed with us for recovering from hip surgeries or going through divorces, or we've had visiting missionaries. We've got a whole photo album. And I'll tell you what, one of the best things we've done in our lives and for our children was to open our home to all different kinds of people. Sometimes just a night, sometimes a year, all different kinds of circumstances. And you got to be wise in all that stuff. But we can sometimes make excuses. Well, I don't do it because we've done it for years. Has it been easy? No. Is it right? Yes. Have you learned that sometimes what is right is not always easy? And if happiness is your main goal and avoiding pain is your main goal, you can do that. But joy, real joy will elude you. So now we talk about how to deal with people that have wronged us or hurt us. Bless those, verse 14 says, who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's almost like he has to repeat it because we go, wait a second, Paul, did you just say what I think you said? Yes, I said it. Bless those who curse you or persecute you. This is just hearkening back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's what Jesus says. The world says, hey, curse those who curse you. Avoid those who curse you. Avoid those who persecute you. Many a person, man or woman, has been saved, has come in to know the love of God because a Christian whom they persecuted has dealt with them with love and forgiveness. Think about the penman or the writer of this book, Romans, who was there holding the clothes of the people stoning Stephen to death and watching Stephen say, just as Christ prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You can't imagine the power of blessing those that persecute you. Blessed, he says, and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now that can be a challenge, right? This is a verse that speaks of empathy. What if this was taught in the public schools? Empathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. See, we weep when others rejoice because I deserve that. I get envious and jealous when things go good for other people because I think I deserve good things. God doesn't withhold anything from you to give it to them. Can I say that again, church? God hasn't withheld anything. He's got enough to go around. If God is blessing that person who you don't think deserves a blessing because you haven't understood how grace works yet, if God is blessing them, you should rejoice with them. Shouldn't you? Because aren't you happy when things go good for you? See, that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You rejoice when things go good with you. Rather than being envious or jealous, you should rejoice when things go good for others. That's hard to do. And weeping, of course, with those that weep. That's what being family is about. We feel deeply for each other. That's family love. We weep with those who weep. Sometimes for pastors, can I make a confession? That's in the same day. I've never seen an emotionally challenging job like being a pastor, being in ministry. Because we're called on to empathize and to sympathize with people all over the scale. And one day I could be at a funeral in the morning and a wedding in the afternoon. It's a challenge. But we love people, you enter into their lives, you enter into their yuck, you enter their mess. And like Job's friend, you don't have to say anything. Sometimes just sitting 
and crying with a person. That's family. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, no divisions, no, well, we're Jews and you're Gentiles. No favoritism, no division. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. If you're struggling with issues of identity, you can tend to gravitate toward people that are something in the world. How many of you watched uh, some part of the royal wedding? Anybody catch the royal wedding this past weekend? You saw bits and pieces of it. I wanted to hear the sermon. So I watched the sermon. I'll comment on that later. But for now, it's like, oh, there's Oprah coming to the royal wedding. And here comes you know, David Beckham. And here comes George Clooney and his wife. And they're all, everybody's, it's a who's who, you know? Sometimes we want to gravitate toward Ah, people that are powerful because we're insecure about ourselves, so we name drop. And we want to hang out with that click, that powerful click, because we want to be seen as powerful or money or those things. And Paul says, look, when it comes to the church, there's no favoritism. Be willing to associate with those of low estate. Go to the soup kitchen. You know, everybody in the eyes of God is equal, but in the world, there's stratification, isn't there? There are some in the world says, hey, these people are the people that you want to be with. These people, you want to avoid them. They won't give you a good reputation. The people that won't give you a good reputation, that's where you want to hang out. I'm not talking about sin, okay? Don't look at me that way. Go to the nursing home. There's a lot of forgotten people down there, people lowly. They're done with their contribution to society, so society throws them out. And that's where God picks them up. And he uses you, uses me. You should consider it an honor. There's a guy in the church went to work with him. He has a high standing in the group that he works with, the company he works for. And I remember walking across the campus where he worked and um, went into the cafeteria and, and the guy mopping the floors. He's like, hey, called him by name. Asked him how his family was. Obviously a relationship there. Here we have, in church, we have the CEO of the company and the janitor of the same company, all on the same level, hanging out together at Bible study. Isn't that great? No stratification in the church. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Ah, I know. Man, there goes all my fun. Look, if someone does evil to you and you hated it when they did it, why would you do it to them, right? That doesn't make sense. If you hated it when it was done to you and you do it to them, you become the very thing you hated right? So don't do it. Don't return evil for evil. This is in marriage. Can I talk to you husbands and wives? This is in marriage. Don't return evil for evil. You see, sometimes in church, you get broken people coming in the door and they're having a bad day and they say something to you and they do something to you. And whoa, whoa. (laughs) Well, if you want all perfect people, you got to look somewhere else because we're going to rub each other the wrong way. You got to know how to respond. You got to know, can I Am I going to escalate this? A harsh word stirs up anger, but a gentle answer turns away wrath. So when someone does evil to me, treats me bad, treats me wrong, I have a choice. Do I escalate it by doing evil back or do I de-escalate it by forgiving them or doing good to them? Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Hey, as much as it's possible with you, You build bridges, don't tear them down. As much as it's possible. Wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. Be a peacemaker. But sometimes the other person isn't willing to build their bridge to you. You can't control that. But you can say that I have done everything I can do 
to be at peace with that person. I've asked for forgiveness if that's appropriate. I've forgiven if that's appropriate. Is there anybody that if you saw them in Food Lion, there you are, you got a hankering for briars. You go into Food Lion, you hit that frozen food section, and there's that person. And they're getting yogurt in your grocery store. And when you see them, you head to produce. Can't, can't, can't do it. Maybe, I say this, you laugh, but that's something I was just convicted about recently. There's one person I could think of that if I came across them in that grocery store, I just, I just don't know. So God convicted me to go to that person and say, hey, are we okay? I mean, what's, where are we? It's not my job to wait for them to come to me. It's my job to go to them. That's what he said here. As much as it's possible with you, be at peace with all men. Beloved. <laughs> you know he's going to say something hard when he starts with, okay, beloved. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He says to us, to you and me, look, there's going to be a desire at times in your life for paybacks, for vengeance. I mean, you want mercy for you, but you want justice for them. Punishment for them, mercy for me. We are not qualified to carry out vengeance. We are not the final judge. Paul's going to get in chapter 13 into the role of government and law and authorities. But this is talking on a personal level, personal justice. Don't be the avenger. We're all into the avenger series these days, right? You are not the avenger. God is the one who gets vengeance. You can't handle vengeance. It's been said over the years, if you seek vengeance, dig two graves one for you and one for the person you're seeking to punish. Vengeance just creates a cancer in your life. It properly belongs with God. Think about the school shootings we've seen. Think about this last school shooting. Hey, kids didn't treat me right. They bullied me. They laughed at me. I'll show them. And in that shooting, he becomes the judge, deciding who lives, who dies. This last one, I don't know if you read the articles, he let some live. He let the kids he liked live. Let the kids he didn't like, he killed them. He let them live because he said, I want my story to be told. It's twisted. But we do the same thing, just not to that degree. Don't avenge yourself. Rather give place to wrath. Vengeance is my same Lord. So if I can't get vengeance, I mean, what do I do with people that I struggle with? What do I do with people that I'm angry at, that I want to see punished? Therefore, verse 20, Paul says, I'm glad you asked. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Huh? If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Yeah, coals of fire, that sounds painful. No, no, that's not the idea. This is Proverbs 25, and he says, in so doing, you're going to bring shame on them. You're going to make them feel ashamed. Is likely a response. When you've done good to someone who's hurt you, it just exposes them. So the last verse, verse 21, says, look, church, he says, don't be overcome by evil. Abhor it. Don't feed into it. Don't buy what the world says. Don't look out for number one. Now look out for the Lord. You can live with us. You might not be able to live with us, but you can't live without us. Do not try to overcome evil with more evil. Legislation won't do it. Revenge won't do it. The only thing that really overcomes evil in your family, in your relationships, is what, church? What's it say there? Love or doing good. It's always right to do good. Love never fails. 